0: Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture is Isaiah 22, verses 1 through 14. A warning of destruction of Jerusalem. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What has happened that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, city full of shouting, tumultuous city, panic-stricken town, Your slain are not slain by the sword, nor are they dead in battle. Your rulers have all fled together. They were captured without the use of a bow. All of your people who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not try to comfort me for the destruction of my beloved people. For the Lord God of Hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the Valley of Vision, a battering down of walls, and a cry for help to the mountains. Elam bore the quiver with chariots and cavalry, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the cavalry took their stand at the gates.
1: He has taken away the covering of Judah. On that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that there were many breaches in the city of David, and you collected the waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it or have regard for him who planned it long ago. On that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and putting on sackcloth, but instead there was joy and festivity, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Sorry, let me read that again. Surely this iniquity will not be forgiven you until you die. That's how it should sound. Sorry. Um, And that was Isaiah 22, verse
2: 1 to 14. Beth and I were down in... um... Picton uh, recently to the county, and there's actually quite a good bookstore in the little town of Picton. It's an old store and it's got the lot, you know, the beautiful wooden floors, right? Like it's really cool. So it reminds me of an old time bookstore. Quite large, as big as this church. So I was going and looking through the new um, releases. And one was by Arnold Schwarzenegger called Be Useful, Seven Tools for Life. So Schwarzenegger is an actor, right? He's quite famous. You've seen him in different action movies. But he was also the governor of California, right? And he did a pretty good job in that, I think. Talented guy. Anyway, the title kind of grabbed me, Seven Tools for Life. And when I opened it up, the first one was, uh, what is your vision? So the very first tool that he goes after is the need for vision, need for personal vision, need for church vision. Um, that struck me because I knew I was going to be looking at this text. Flipped through it. didn't buy the book, but uh, maybe I should. Seven, you know, it's a Vision is a good piece. So what is your vision? What is my vision? That stays as a good question, I think, for us, regardless of the time. So this text, written maybe, you know, 700 years before Christ, put together at different times, Isaiah is speaking, you'll hear his voice here, but he's asking that question, what, what is your vision? So I, I think for us individually, that's a good text to ask and consider, so we don't just kind of wander about, but we have a direction, a goal in our lives, in our life. So, uh... Anyway, Valley of Vision, Isaiah references it twice here, verse 1 and verse 4, I think, and that's where we're going to look at it. It's a little bit challenging, but uh, useful text for us to consider. Valley of Vision. So we begin with the first couple of verses. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You that are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town, your slain are not slain by the sword, nor are they dead in battle. For the Lord God of hosts is a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a cry for help to the mountains. So that's how it sets up. So if you're doing hermeneutic studies, hermeneutics is to Interpret, that's from the Greek word to interpret, to interpret, to translate, understand. So one of the first things you do is you look at the context. So what, what's going on here? And we'll note that the greater context is actually God's judgment on the nations. So chapters 14 through 21, three are noted, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Assyria. So God is, is looking at those nations seeing how they've presented themselves over the years, and it's a word of judgment for them and against them. But surprisingly, if you like, it ends with also a judgment against Israel. So chapter 22, the chapter we jump into, is part of this larger story of God's concern for how humankind is doing. And so the specific context, when we look at the text, and it isn't all filled out here, right, in Isaiah, but in other parts of Scripture it is. So if you look at 2 Chronicles 32, maybe this week sometime, you'll see that the empire of Assyria came across and, and attacked Israel. All right? So Israel's a coveted piece of territory. It still is. It's right on the Mediterranean. It's along the trade routes uh, from... You know, Turkey and Greece and then up the coast so on. It's, it's um, attractive for many, many folk. And the Assyrians saw that and wanted it. And so they have a siege against Jerusalem. And all the troops, thousands and thousands of troops are around Jerusalem. Somewhat ironic for what's going on today in Gaza. So right now, as you know, Gaza is under siege, surrounded. And Israel faced the very same experience these many years ago when the Assyrian Empire was around the city of Jerusalem. And what that meant was you could not leave, you couldn't go, you couldn't leave if you tried. And in the reading of our text, some of the rulers did try to escape, but they were caught uh, ultimately were killed or held hostage. So this is what's going on right here. And if you have a chance to read 2 Chronicles 32, it's kind of interesting because what happens is that God actually does intervene. And he intervenes and the Assyrians leave. So they have the city under, under control, under guard. They haven't entered yet. Big deal, but they, it's under control. And then one day, the Israelites come up to the top of their homes, and they see that the Israelites—I'm sorry—the Assyrians are leaving. And it seems that God struck down many of the Assyrians. There maybe it was an illness, a pandemic of some sort. Many died, and the, the people left. So that happens in Second Chronicles thirty-two. The key that happens here is that when the people see that somewhat reasonable they start celebrating yay the Assyrians are leaving but what God is looking for there is not celebration God is actually looking for confession and repentance and turning towards him and so there's an interesting contrast between looking to your own resources and looking to God so there's a contrast and you'll see that they do not repent or turn to God Note, verse 11 and 12, this is their response. It's kind of interesting. On that day the Lord God, verse 12, On that day the Lord God of hosts called to weeping and mourning, to baldness and putting on sackcloth. But instead there was joy and festivity, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating meat and drinking. Why? Why? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That was their perspective. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's just have a good time. Let's party. The Assyrians were here, and then they left. And so the response is celebration. I don't think that's all that unreasonable. We might have done the very same thing if we were there. It's a party. But at a deeper level, God is looking for something else. And it's interesting that the valley of vision here becomes a place of disobedience and a place of judgment. God batters down the walls. There's a famous poem by Rilke, which I quite like, and just a f- couple of lines here from it on battering down walls. Rilke writes He, that is God, he is the one who breaks down the walls, and when he works, he works in silence. Where does that phrase come from? Battering down the walls. It comes from right here. God is the one who batters down the walls. The writer here, Morneau, goes on to make this comment. Most of us prefer to live undisturbed lives. See if that resonates with you. Definitely resonates with me. That's what I like. Most of us prefer to live undisturbed lives. We strive to isolate ourselves from the fears of insecurity and the anxieties of poverty. By means of control and power, we erect walls that protect us from the bruises of life. No enemy, demon, or divine penetrates our fortified souls. He writes, we build walls to protect ourselves. The city of Jerusalem today, if you go visit Jerusalem, is, has a huge wall that surrounds the, the entire old city. This wall, built by the Turkish folk who were there in the 1500s. But previous to that, there were other walls. But we do the same thing. We build walls. We build walls around ourselves. We build walls by, you know, tr- trying to save a lot of money, having it in the bank. And if we have run into problems, we have that. We try to find a good job, hold on to that job for whatever it is. Whatever we do to isolate ourselves, protect ourselves. But the issue is that God always doesn't always like that. And we can put up walls that actually need to come down. And God, in his love and compassion, at times batters down the walls. And when the balls are being battered down, we don't necessarily like it. It hurts. We like the walls that we've put up. But the text here reminds the nation of Israel that God is going to batter down their walls. And interesting, it didn't happen in the immediate context. It didn't happen for years and years later when finally the Babylonians came in and raised the city. But ultimately, in God's perspective, God sees the whole thing. The walls were going to come down. Not in that immediate story. So the reality then is that we can do whatever we want to protect ourselves, but God in his love comes and will do what he needs. So we can think of our pride. What are our walls? Ego can be our false self, my narcissistic self who I am, who I want to present. And I put that out to the world, and I I use that as protection. And what God is saying, yeah, but that's not the self I know. self I know is the self inside, the true you. And that's the one I want to get to, the true you. So we can consider ourselves, Israel was called to mourn, to confess their weakness and say that they were apart from God, but they wouldn't do it. God comes as the one who batters down walls. So that's kind of the initial context of the story. I don't know, do you relate to that at all? Can you think of times when God was battering down the walls in your life? Maybe. Wanting to get to the true you. The only, you know, the only you that will ever God will ever know in the long run is the true you. The false you is going to be left way behind. That's not what's important. So what's Israel's immediate response here? Here we go. On that day you look to the weapons of the house of the forest. The house of the forest was their armory. That's where they kept their spears and their chariots and so on. And Solomon was the one who built the house of the forest called that way because it had pillars made out of cedar. It was a beautiful room, powerful, all made of wood, called the house of the forest. That was the name. And you saw that there were many breaches in the city of David, and you collected the waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the walls. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it, or have regard for him who planned it. So what's his serious response? Isaiah says, "Who's writing, they look to their own resources. They look, you see, they look to their resources, they don't look to God. That's his contrast. They look to the arms. I have written down here the atheism of force. The atheism of force, meaning trusting in force, that's that's the world's M.O. Israel right now, what are they trusting in in their response to Gaza? Their force. Tanks are all lined up at the borders, ready to go. That's force. We're going to come in, teach you a lesson. What happens with Iraq and the Iraqi war? Israel, not Israel, but America. We're hit, we're going to hit you harder. Force. And so that's the way our world operates, unfortunately. By the way, what did Christ say? Turn your cheek. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Ch- Jesus takes it to a whole new level. And, and if we were doing that, love our enemy, if that was our response, the world would be a completely different place. But we still live by the old... You hit me, I hit you back. That's how our our nations work. And ultimately, their statement is, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So they look to their own resources. The water, building the water reserves, reserves in the city, building the city walls, looking to their own weapons. That's their response. Beth and I, years ago, went to Jerusalem, and Hezekiah, who was king at this point, built a tunnel to bring the waters from a pool outside the walls inside. And you can actually walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. Beth actually did it. When I went there, the water was too cold, so I just chickened out and I didn't go. Beth went right through the tunnel by Hezekiah. Isn't that right? Good for you. See, she says, Beth, I have a better m- m- memory than you do on these things. Because <laughs> your students were all excited about it. I was there on a very rainy day, and we all decided to forget it. We were there different times. But Hezekiah built this tunnel to bring water in. That was part of the way to prepare for the battle. But God is saying, okay, you're taking these practical steps. Okay, in one way, that's, 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 that makes sense. But God is not really that interested, ultimately, because they're not looking to him. They're not trusting in him. They look to their weapons the house of the forest, instead of looking to God. And so there's reverse priorities, and I wonder, what about ourselves? We're going to look at that in a moment. How do we look when we come to challenging times? Do we try to all just figure it out in ourselves, or can we draw God into the circle? What, what's our response? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. It's the same statement as the wealthy farmer in Luke 12. He has a bumper year. You remember that story? Now he's going to build barns, retire, and just live off the land, live off all the money he's got. He says, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what I'm going to do. And again, we might say, well, you know, that's, that's actually not that unreasonable. I might want to do the very same thing. But God says, hey, you're missing the point. Are you looking to me or not? Look to ourselves, look to God later. Syria looks to them, their own weapons and so on. Hezekiah looked to God, but the people did not. So, where do we go with that? What's, what's our vision? We return to that. So, it's a story. You could dive into that and spend a lot more time on that story, the Valley of Vision. But it's asking the fundamental question for your life and for my life what, what is my direction going forward? And is it the same as, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die? Interesting, one commentator writes this, for tomorrow we die expresses the ultimate rationale for a life of acquisition and indulgence. If indeed there is nothing beyond the grave, then self-sacrifice, commitment, and self-denying discipline. This person writes, are foolish, or you don't need to be going that direction. Tomorrow we will die, perhaps. On the other hand, if there is life after death, it behooves us to do everything possible to discover the nature and conditions of that life and to be sure that we have met those conditions. That's what Oswald writes. There's some truth to that. Do we think of the big picture? What is that picture? So much we don't understand. for the writers in the Old Testament and the New Testament, well, there is this greater arc, this arc of life, ongoing life. So will we live in light of that truth, your life for my life? So what is the valley of vision for you, for me? And secondly, well, God batters down our resistance. We don't necessarily like to think that. We don't like to think God is battering down our walls, but if it ultimately is based on his love for you and for me and you're putting up barriers, then that may be what needs to happen. could be in relationships too, could it not be? You could build up whatever defenses you have and that protects you and you you do that you and your partner. I've got these walls. If the walls don't come down, then how, how do you communicate? And God is doing the same for us. I think Rilke's right on there when he sees that. God batters down the walls. Why? Because he loves you, he loves me. Even though it hurts at the time, in some ways. God seeks after the most important things. One Puritan writer wrote this, I like this poem. He calls it the Valley of Vision. That's why I ref- used it. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see Thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold my, or behold Thy glory. I like this. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision." So for your life right now, where are you? Maybe you're in the valley. Some sort of valley valley. Different issues going on beside you, and you feel kind of locked in there. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you're not in the valley at all. Maybe you're on the mountaintop. Life is good at the moment. But we see that image on and on in terms of the scriptures. The valleys are valleys. Next week we're going to look at a very happy story: the lily of the valley. The Rose of Sharon, a whole different thing. The beautiful Rose of Sharon. The Lily of the Valley. We looked at Sharon a few weeks ago, that coastal plain along the Mediterranean. Not that far from Gaza, just up. So where are you, where am I right now? If we are in the Valley of Vision, maybe it's a good place where you're seeing New opportunities, maybe it's a challenging place of hurt. But we have, you know, some choices to be made in that valley, a direction we need to pursue. So I pray that uh, you might indeed sense God's leading in your life, in your valley right now, that there might be more vision, a tool for your life to lead you forward, to lead me forward. And we pray that also for the larger communities, the communities in the Middle East right now. What's what can be a vision of of peace? What can be a vision of um, love rather than hate? We need to pray big time for that community. In Jesus' name. Amen.